Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A South Florida bank has been one of the most prolific lenders of government rescue money during the pandemic. If you had asked me... You're going to have to process $2 billion in loans, 9,000 applications in the middle of a pandemic, everybody working remotely. Could you do it? And I would have said, hell no, no way. But City National Bank of Florida did it. And CEO George Gonzalez sees local business growing again. I'm Tom Hudson. Today on the Sunshine Economy, the boss at City National Bank of Florida. Also on today's program, catching up with a cleaner, baker and banker in the pandemic economy. It's a great big difference from this time last year. We're right now at a level of almost prior to the pandemic in terms of production of empanadas. Makes perfect sense for us to be adding to our lending team. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week and for supporting public radio. It looks a lot better than we thought it was going to look 12 months ago. That's how George Gonzalez describes the South Florida economy today. Now, he should know he's the boss of one of the largest locally based banks here, City National Bank of Florida, and he's helped push hundreds of millions of dollars in pandemic rescue money into businesses here and across the nation. City National Bank of Florida is one of the largest lenders of money through two government programs invented to avoid a long-lasting economic depression brought on by COVID-19. The bank funneled about $4 billion in loans through federal programs in the past year. That's about two years' worth of a normal lending pace for the bank, though it wasn't loaning out depositors' money. It was using the Paycheck Protection Program money provided by Congress and another loan program that was created by the country's central bank, the Federal Reserve. These efforts were among the rescue strategies deployed a year ago when the economy was in a freefall driven by fear over COVID-19 and the economic restrictions put in place in hopes of slowing the spread of the virus. This bank is based in downtown Miami. It has fewer than three dozen branches in South and Central Florida, but it was one of the most prolific lenders of the emergency money to companies here and in more than two dozen states. Borrowers from Hialeah to Honolulu, Weston to Wyoming used the bank to secure the cash. Through the Paycheck Protection Program, City National Bank of Florida lent over $4 million to a Burger King franchise in Alabama and $150,000 to a trucking operator in Wisconsin. Through the Federal Reserve Program, the bank arranged a $250,000 loan for a Coral Gables dentist and a $50 million loan to a plastic surgery medical device maker in Broward County. We will hear from bank CEO George Gonzalez about why the relatively small Miami bank was such an active player with these programs in a little bit. When we spoke with him last week over Zoom, we started by asking him what the bank's business today tells him about the state of the South Florida economic recovery. We're seeing, you know, businesses headed in the right direction. Uh, The economy seems to be also plugging in the right direction. If you compare to where we were a year ago, you know, we were at about $3 billion in loan deferments 12 months ago. We're down to about $140 million. So that's about a 95% decrease. 
and what bank is all about when, when your loans are performing well, the rest of the businesses tend to do very well. So overall, I think the economy is certainly heading in the right direction. On the loan deferments, have those customers been brought current or have you closed those loans out at a loss? No, um, I would say 99% of those loans, if not more, have been um, clients have brought those loans current and we've had to make minor modifications to help in some cases, but we have not taken any losses or any charge off as a result of that entire process. Have you had to extend the loans longer, extend the life of the loan? Yeah, in some cases, you know, depending on the situation, we were trying to help business owners or consumers relative to their specific situation. But I would say in general, in just the sheer volume of, of, of what we had to deal with, the majority of those loans were brought current without having to make any major modifications or extensions. That $3 billion of loan deferment, that would represent roughly 25% of the bank's loan portfolio? Uh, give or take, yeah, that's about right. Maybe a little bit more. And were those stretched across different types of loan categories, commercial business loans, loans for construction, loans for real estate? Yeah, I would say that if you broke down to $3 billion, we would probably say 70% of that was commercial, uh, 30% was consumer. And then when you break down the commercial part, uh, obviously a lot of it had to do with hospitality. Um, a lot of it had to do with uh, some restaurant businesses and then just general industries that make up the, the Florida economy per se. So it, it was kind of really consistently in line with the the allocation of, of lending that we do relative to the industries that we support in the state of Florida. So what does that repair work on those loans tell you about the overall state of the South Florida economy today? The amount of money that has been injected into the economy by the government over the last 12 months has, I think, made its way into business and, and, and consumers. And that obviously has had a very positive effect. I, I think the amount of um, migration that we've seen into the state of Florida from the Northeast, from Midwest, from California is helping tremendously. I think the way uh, the economy has been open in the state of Florida for you know the last six, seven, eight months, I think has gone a long way into making sure that you know revenues um, continue to flow and employment continues to stay high. All the indicators we're seeing, even in some of the sectors that were hardest hit, like hospitality, are starting to really move in the right direction. On top of that, uh, I'm starting to see banks become much more active on the lending side, including us. Back to basics, back to core lending, primarily a lot of commercial real estate lending, uh, a lot of small business commercial lending, and on the consumer residential side as well. Let's talk about that more traditional bank business of lending into this economy. Describe the business loan demand that you've been experiencing. Well, as you know, Tom, the, the uh, real estate market in the state of Florida has performed extremely well. So we're seeing a lot of, on, on the consumer side, we're seeing a lot of refinancing relative to the rate environment. We're seeing a lot of uh, new home acquisition as well, both from uh, Floridians and also from people outside the state of Florida. So it's really both on the acquisition side and on the refinance side that we're seeing a lot of, a lot of volume in terms of consumer lending. On that part of the business, the underlying value of the asset, the home values, we've seen them shoot up by single digits uh, percentage increase almost every few months now. Is that concerning? Of course, it's concerning. But what I, what I like is the fact that what I see relative to the competitive landscape is most financial institutions are staying very disciplined 
relative to the credit metrics and, and the qualifications that are needed to be able to um, extend a, a residential loan. So you, you're not seeing a lot of leverage chasing property values and, uh, and they're staying true to credit scores, debt to income, all the metrics that are, you know, um, that really make up a very solid lending approach are, are really being well adhered to. And I think that goes a long way into making sure that we don't create a credit bubble in the future. On the commercial business side, what does loan demand look like? And perhaps even as important now as we're pulling out of this pandemic economy, what about the quality of the credit? You know, loan demand started to pick up, I would say, late November, December of last year. And it has quickly uh, kept up pace through first quarter of this year. And we're seeing it across uh, most sectors of, of commercial real estate in terms of industrial, you know, multifamily, um, even some retail. Obviously, hospitality is still a sector that everybody's a little bit concerned about, but we're starting to see some glimmers of, of, of sunlight there as well. Uh, so across the board, commercial real estate is, is doing well, and the demand is certainly there for sure. And the capital is there to meet the demand. So it's, it's kind of a, a well-balanced uh, demand and supply component of, of that sector. In terms of small businesses and, and more mid-sized businesses, it really depends on what industry we're talking about. Um, but in general, you know, I think most business owners would say that 2020, or at least the second half of 2020 and the first quarter of 21, were probably better than they anticipated. And now what they're doing is making sure that their infrastructure from an expense standpoint is in line to be able to support the revenues and that they're seeing, rather than trying to deal with a problem, now they're starting to refocus on where they're taking their businesses and how much capital they're going to invest in their businesses to be able to continue growth. So it's really been a change in mindset relative to a confidence level in the overall direction of the economy. I just wanted to ask you about that kind of dynamic as your lenders are sitting with small and medium-sized business owners. Are they looking for loans to help fill the hole that created by the pandemic, or are they seeing opportunities? Are they are they looking for low borrowing costs today to try to seed future growth? It's primarily driven by the latter. It's it's all about where the opportunities um, lie. A lot of what we're seeing today is really a byproduct of companies getting back to 2019 plus levels of revenues and growth. And so there's a general excitement in, in the air relative to investment, growth, and employment. And, and those are all, you know, makes it a lot easier for us to really underwrite transactions because, you know, the recovery is, is not something we're having to, to bet on. We're actually seeing it in the numbers. Are companies who are your customers sitting on excess cash? compared to pre-pandemic times? Uh, that's a good question, Tom. I, would, I wouldn't say excess cash. I would say levels of cash that are consistent with their balance sheet and their size of business. So I, I wouldn't say that they're overflowing with cash, uh, but they're certainly you know, in a comfortable position or, or a more comfortable position to be able to start thinking about you know, expansion and investment. And of course, that goes right into employment growth, right? Because the companies have got to be convinced of the sustainability of revenues in order to hire back to pre-pandemic levels, let alone add new jobs on top of that. It's funny, some businesses are actually complaining that they, they can't find employees. Right, right. Which is kind of ironic given uh, you know where we were six to you know 12 months ago. So some, some industries are actually having issues because you know some of their work 
workforce has been working for a long time, many hours for a long time, and they're needing to either invest for growth or they're having to invest to just to kind of help support the, the current workforce. And they're, they're having some challenges in doing so because overall, the demand for, for employees is, is pretty solid. So employees have a choice in terms of where they want to work. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic of, of what's happening from an employment standpoint right now. That's George Gonzalez. He's CEO of City National Bank of Florida, based in Miami. It's the second largest bank headquartered in South Florida. Still to come, the outsized role the bank played in pandemic loans backed by the Federal Reserve. The objective was pretty simple. The more we helped the economy, the more we helped our clients, the more we helped ourselves. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. Don't forget about our podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. Search Sunshine Economy. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Thanks. A year ago, the Federal Reserve launched a historic and mostly untested alphabet soup of emergency financial rescue programs. There was the PDCF, the CPFF, the MMLF, and a bunch of others. Together, they added up to trillions of dollars. The general idea by the central bank was to just do about anything it could think of to ensure America's financial system didn't melt down as the pandemic was taking hold. It would backstop car loans, home mortgages, money market mutual funds, and operating loans to companies. It worked. The Federal Reserve, acting as a lender of last resort, along with trillions of dollars in stimulus spending okayed by Congress, helped pull the American economy out of its steepest drop on record. A community bank in Miami was one of the most prolific lenders of some of this money. City National Bank of Florida processed more than $2 billion of Paycheck Protection Program loans and another $2 billion of loans through the Federal Reserve's Main Street Lending Program. While the Paycheck Protection Program money can be forgiven if it's used mostly to keep workers on the payroll, the Main Street Lending Program was aimed at small and medium-sized businesses as loans, as companies could use the money pretty much however they like. Borrowers have five years under the program to pay back the money at an interest rate of just over 3%. The Federal Reserve originally earmarked $600 billion for the program, but companies borrowed less than $20 billion before it closed down in January. As an industry, banks did not embrace the effort, but George Gonzalez's bank certainly did. 11 cents of every dollar companies borrowed nationwide through this Federal Reserve strategy were loaned out through City National Bank of Florida. One of every five loans made was made by the bank. No bank in the United States made as many loans under the program. We spoke with Gonzalez last week over Zoom about why City National Bank of Florida was so willing to lend money through this program when others weren't. We were active because we felt that there was a significant opportunity for us to support companies that clearly had an opportunity to continue to grow, uh, businesses that have a proven track record of success prior to the pandemic, And we felt that the structure of the program really allowed us to support businesses with taking a considerable amount of less risk than we would have to in normal situations. So, and at the end of the day, we also felt like it was our responsibility to really, you know, help the government distribute these uh, these funds to businesses that were in need of the funds. So we felt it was the right thing to do. It was a, a, a corporate responsibility of us as a financial institution. And it really allowed us to, in all honesty, 
not only support existing clients, but acquire new banking relationships as well. You talk about being able to get into this program with less risk than a normal loan. The Federal Reserve said it would buy 95% of the loan amounts, and the bank would then keep 5% of the loan amounts. Has City National Bank sold those Main Street lending program loans back to the Federal Reserve? Well, yeah, we, we sold the 95% and we retained the 5% that we were supposed to retain. And the other thing that's important to note on that, Tom, is the underwriting that went into these loans was really, it, it wasn't like the PPP you know, process. The PPP process was more of a grant process. This is a true underwriting. So we really had to you know, look at each individual situation and look at pre-pandemic numbers and, and make sure that we felt comfortable that we were able to underwrite the, the repayment capacity of these institutions. Uh, so it was something that required a, a lot of resources, a lot of work, a lot of man hours to be able to do so. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, we were underwriting on behalf of the government to, to ensure that these that this money was paid back uh, as, as it was supposed to. And, and, and in doing so, we learned a lot about these companies. We le- learned a lot about the owners. So we helped the economy. We helped the community. Um, we helped the government. And eventually, it, you know, we feel like it helps the bank long term. You were ultimately lending out money backed by the Federal Reserve. You kept 5% of the loans. What kind of risk exposure does that represent for City National Bank today that it didn't have, say, 18 months ago? Well, figure 5% of $2 billion. That's uh, $100 million, George. That's $100 million bucks. So, so you know, where people say 5%, but when you start looking at real dollars, $100 million is, is real money, no matter how you cut it. Listen, $100 million is important, but think about the $1.9 billion that went into the community and our clients and the economy and what companies were able to do relative to employment and, and capital and expenditures and, and growth and, and, and innovation and everything and all the things that they have to do to effectively run their businesses. And I think that's the real value because if these companies and, and the overall community and the economies continue to grow, then we all do well. And I think that's what we're seeing happening as we speak. Sure. But the bank has to do well as an ongoing concern here. And with a hundred million dollars of essentially new risk, how has that changed the risk profile of what has been the traditional loan portfolio for City National? The way we uh, approached this process is we had to be, we had to get comfortable that the repayment was there and the structure was there. You know, the way these loans were structured, we had to be able to underwrite a repayment source in the future. So we, it's not like we underwrote the Main Street loans thinking that we were going to write off 5%. We actually underwrote to make sure that the companies had the wherewithal based on historical performance. And not only that, but based on what we were seeing relative to Q3 and Q4 of last year, to be, be able to generate the cash flow that we paid, you know, we pay these loans and, and years going forward. And that's the way we underwrote each individual loan that we did. And so far, so good. I mean, we're, I think uh, the way we approached it and what we're seeing in the economy, I think was the, is proving to be, I mean, it's early, certainly, but it's certainly proving to be the right decision. All those Main Street loans are still performing for City National? Yes, sir. It brought the bank to a national audience in such a big way. City National is a large bank by South Florida standards. It's one of the largest community banks in Florida. But the presence that City National Bank had in the Main Street lending program, 20% of the loans, 11% of the dollar value, $2 billion, 23 states, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. You had companies across the nation and the Caribbean participating through your bank. What did that take 
in terms of resources for the bank to step in, to lean in to this untested program in such a significant way? If you think about it, the large financial institutions are, are, are gigantic, right? And their ability to, to quickly move on a, on a dime is not easy because they have hundreds of thousands of employees. They're geographically dispersed throughout you know, the entire country or the world. So every time they make a decision in order to be able to deploy that, it, it doesn't happen momentarily. Um, and then by the same token, the smaller institutions, you know, they're strapped for resources and capital and technology and all the things that you need to be able to deploy this. So really when we kicked off the PPP program, you know, we basically had an all hands on deck process and we had the capital and we had the technology and we had the expertise from a talent standpoint to be able to quickly navigate and, and, and assess the situation and make decisions that we could deploy in, in a very rapid manner. And that's what allowed us to be so successful on the PPP side. And really the PPP success kind of transitioned right into the Main Street program because we had picked up a lot of visibility as a result of it. Our clients realized that how active we were, how committed we were in helping the, the economy, and how, how committed we were to helping our clients. And one led to the other. So the momentum and our success on the PPP side, which we did about you know, 9,000 loans for $2 billion, really transitioned very well to the uh, Main Street side of, of the government programs. As a longtime banker, George, I have to ask about the issue of moral hazard in regards to the Federal Reserve Main Street lending program. The central bank can do a lot of things in the economy. It can't spend money directly, but it can it can affect the environment to make loans. And that's what it did with the Main Street lending program. It was an untested historic move by the central bank to, by extension through United States banks, to push money out uh, through loans that the Federal Reserve was backing. Does that present to you, as a veteran banker, a moral hazard? Tom, in all honesty, I don't think they had a choice. I think given the uh, severity of the situation and the, um, in terms of urgency and the sheer magnitude of the situation, I, I don't think any program would have been perfect. But I think the way they decided to deploy capital into the economy through the banks, in my opinion, um, was the right decision. Could there be some long-term potential pitfalls as a result of it? Yeah, of course there can. But I think the greater good has been served. And hopefully, uh, if the economy continues to go in the direction that we're seeing, I, I think that you know, history is going to look back and say, you know, they made the right call at the right time. What kind of impact has the fee income from this program had for the bank? I think it's uh, it's minuscule relative to the amount of resources and uh, and the time and, and the effort that went into these programs. I mean, we had people working 20 hours a day for, for, for months in order to be able to deploy. You know, think about this. In a normal year, we do, let's say in 2019, we'll do, we did probably three and a half billion dollars in new lending. Uh, we did two billion dollars in 9000 loan applications in probably 90 days. So the amount of just sheer effort that it takes to be able to do so under you know, the criteria that were set forth by the government with the regulatory environment that we work within, with the technology that we had to invest to make that happen, it, it, was, uh, it was a significant undertaking. So uh, there was some fee income that came as a byproduct of it. But it, again, that really wasn't the, the objective. The, the objective was pretty simple, 
the more we help the economy, the more we helped our clients, the more we helped ourselves. We were all attached at the hip. And when you have $3 billion in loan deferments in the middle of a pandemic, and we really don't know where the light at the end of the tunnel stands, uh, then you really have to do your best to make sure that you help clients that eventually are tied to your success. That's George Gonzalez, CEO of City National Bank of Florida, the second largest bank based in South Florida. Our conversation continues still to come, how the bank stepped into the Paycheck Protection Program with thousands of loans totaling billions of dollars in just a few months. If you had asked me, you're going to have to process $2 billion in loans, 9,000 applications in the middle of a pandemic, everybody working remotely, could you do it? And I would have said, hell no, no way. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for supporting public radio. Today, it's a conversation with George Gonzalez, CEO at City National Bank of Florida. It's the second largest bank headquartered in South Florida. He said he saved some customer voicemails from some of the toughest days of the pandemic. The messages are from business owners who secured money through the bank, helping save their companies. City National Bank of Florida was one of the most active banks in the country, lending money through two federal economic pandemic rescue programs. One was through the Federal Reserve. The second was a congressional program, the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP. It was crafted in just a matter of weeks and first passed by Congress in late March of last year. Now, the program has been criticized for not doing enough to ensure small companies could easily participate and for relying on banks who focused on their existing customers to dole out the money. City National Bank of Florida processed thousands of Paycheck Protection Program loans worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, the loans do not have to be paid back if the money is spent mostly on keeping employees on payrolls. But the bank is no longer accepting applications for PPP loans, even though the program has been extended by the Biden administration until the end of May. This is where we pick up our conversation with Bank President George Gonzalez. We spoke over Zoom. Really, we saw a significant drop off in demand. Uh, what we accomplished in the last 90 days or so um, it was uh, a good amount of volume. It was nowhere near the volume that we had last year. And then, you know, the, the process, in all honesty, from a government standpoint, became very complicated and, and very arduous. We didn't want to have a, a negative client experience on behalf of um, our clients. So we figured, you know, we had done uh, our fair share. The majority of our clients that we were trying to take care of had been taken care of, but not all of them, in all honesty. So we kind of had to draw the line somewhere. And that's where we just discontinued the process. So really now what we're focusing on is, is making sure that everything that was submitted has been processed and the forgiveness process, which is still a, a very significant heavy lift because we still have to make sure that all of the PPP, first wave of the loans, second wave of the loans, that they all uh, go through the forgiveness process, which is not an easy process because they all have to be you know, uh, inspected, they all have to be qualified and they all have to be forgiven. And again, that takes a... a a good amount of, of resources and time to make that happen. When you talk about the government process changing, why did it change? Do you, have you been able to put your finger on on what led to the change? Was it the change in administrations? Listen, I, I think anytime something is rolled out as quickly as the first program was rolled out, you're going to have opportunities to make it either better 
or more in line with the current situation. And, and the fact is that, you know, between PPP, you know, 1.0 and 2.0, that the world changed a lot. My guess is they saw opportunities to make it, you know, the qualifications a little bit tighter to be more in line with what's going on in the economy. They took feedback from the banks relative to the first wave of PPP. And then they decided to make it um, to upgrade the process. And they, they had to apply the learnings from phase one. And I think that's the right thing to do anytime you deploy something like was deployed in, in March, April, May of last year. One of the other changes that the Biden administration has made is to very intentionally focus on very small businesses, sole proprietorships, one to four people companies. Did that turn the bank off? Not at all. I, I think our average size loan for phase one of PPP was probably around $170,000, $180,000, give or take maybe $190,000. And the second round, I think we we're probably somewhere around one forty dollars or so, $130,000, $140,000. So it didn't really drop that much for us. A lot of, in all honesty, the second wave of PPP was really the repeat applicants. My guess is 85 to 90% of the applicants for the second phase of PPP were the same, were, were the same applicants for uh, 1.0. So uh, it didn't turn us off. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we just have to be, it has to be consistent with the demographics of the economy and the communities that we serve. And, um, and that's our clientele. And given the drop-off in demand that you've uh, referenced, what's your sense of that clientele, particularly at small and medium-sized business clientele, which is so fundamental to the South Florida economy? My sense is that they probably need the money more than, than most. And honestly, they felt helpless. I mean, we all felt helpless for a period of time, right? We didn't know which way was up. Uh, we did everything we could to make sure that, that we uh, helped them through the qualification process because the criteria is, you know, as they evolved, we, we, we needed to make sure that there was some assistance that went into that process. Uh, we figured we saved somewhere around 250,000 jobs, give or take. That really just made a huge difference. The Paycheck Protection Program was really one of the first significant congressional programs that was an economic stimulus effort in the early days of the pandemic. Take us back to those days or the weeks as you were learning about the program, realizing the role that community banks were being asked to play in these dark days, days with so much uh, invisibility when it came to confidence. Well, I think dark days is an understatement. Um, think about the fact that we did 9,000 loans, 9,500 loans for $2 billion. But we forget that we had to do that while 100% of our employees were working from home. And everybody was worried about their health and, and their personal situations. If you had asked me 30 days prior to that happening, hey, you're going to have to process $2 billion in loans, 9,000 applications in the middle of a pandemic, everybody working remotely, could you do it? And I would have said, hell no, no way. But it's amazing what a sense of um, what crisis will do to, to create a sense of urgency and, and rally people together. It was a very interesting time because it, it's not like the rules came out, you know, and it was black and white all day one and you knew exactly what you had to do. It was really kind of an evolution of information that was, you know, slowly dripping out of the SBA and, and, and D.C. in terms of what the program was going to look like and, and, and what the technology was going to be and, and what the qualifications and the criteria were going to be. So you're trying to design something while it's changing every day. Your clients are asking you, hey, what's it going to look like? When is it going to be open? How do I qualify? 
but you don't have all the answers because there's still the answers are changing and 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 being uh, you know adjusting on a daily basis. So you look back now and you, and you kind of forget how much went into designing and making that all happen. And it, it was very rewarding in a lot of different ways. It was it was a lot of hard work, but extremely rewarding. City National Bank of Florida President George Gonzalez. Still to come, the future of community banking in Florida after the pandemic. Size, scale does matter. You need a certain scale in order to make this business work because the cost of people, the cost of compliance, the cost of technology, you have to have X, you know, a certain size. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. COVID-19 has rearranged countless companies. The pandemic pivot, like other overused business jargon, think synergy, outside the box, disruption. Pivot is applied to practices that are less about pivoting and more about just progress. When restaurants were shut down and moved to offer more takeout and delivery, that's a pivot. A liquor company making hand sanitizer amid the COVID-19 virus outbreak, that's a pivot. Well before the pandemic, people were doing more and more banking online. The virus has helped speed up that transition. Finance is not pivoting to the Internet. It's already there. City National Bank of Florida is not pivoting. CEO George Gonzalez has plans to grow online and with brick-and-mortar traditional bank branches. The bank has fewer than three dozen locations in South and Central Florida. And last fall, it completed a buyout of a smaller community bank, adding to the consolidation that's been happening for several years among community banks. We spoke with Gonzalez over Zoom. We have seen a a significant transition to more of our online products over the last six, seven, eight months. So I think consumers and, and business owners have really realized that um, it's important for them to have multiple channels of connectivity to their financial institution. We had been investing in technology and a lot of our mobile products for, for years. So this really allowed us to only accelerate more what we were already doing because the adaptation by our clients really accelerated as well. We were fortunate, though, because some of these smaller institutions in the state didn't have the technology or the capital to be able to to deploy it like we were able to make that happen. So I think what you're going to see is the trend uh, towards more mobile products and services only continue to accelerate because clients, you know, started to use them and therefore became more comfortable with that level of connectivity to financial institutions. What has it done to your technology budget at the bank? Well, it was already pretty large, um, <laughs> but it is uh, it is considerably larger. We would have gotten to these levels anyway. We're probably, I'd say, two to three years ahead of where we would have been. But uh, from a competitive landscape standpoint, this is just inevitable. We didn't want to become the, the blockbuster of the industry relative to you know uh, how quickly you can become a dinosaur in this industry if, if you don't invest in technology. What about the physical footprint of the bank, those uh, brick-and-mortar banking locations? You've got uh, almost three dozen of them now uh, in South Florida and Central Florida. Do you still need that many post-pandemic? The answer is yes. You know, for a $20 billion, $19, $20 million bank, 30 locations is really on, on the low side. Because when you look at markets like, you know, Broward and Palm Beach and Orlando and Tampa, we do need more physical presence. Now, we're not going to have an institution with 
two or 300 branches. I think that's a thing of the past. So we do need some more brick and mortar in key locations, primarily just to create more market visibility and, and, and more of a presence per se, because it, in reality, even our local banking centers in, in our core market like Miami, uh, traffic is, is really, it's down probably 20, 30%. That's foot traffic? That's foot traffic, correct. Your clients really don't need to come into the banking center unless they really want to. But traffic in most, ban- in most banks, probably all banks, is way down, and that's going to continue to be a trend for the future. Let's uh, take a look at community banking uh, as an industry. Um, CNB is the second largest South Florida-based bank. Where's the growth coming from post-pandemic for City National and for community banking in general? We believe that um, our market share is going to continue to increase in Miami, where we have the most market share relative to the other markets that we serve. We're probably somewhere around 4 to 5%. In Miami, and but as you go north to uh, Broward, Palm Beach, and Orlando, and Tampa, you know we're sub one percent. Are you grabbing that market share from competitors, or is it just grabbing more of the overall growth of the market? I, I would say it's probably seventy percent from competitors and thirty percent from the expansion in the market uh, relative to new investments from outside the state. We're seeing a lot of people. We really are our private banking business, our wealth management business. And our international private banking business has really seen a big uptick relative to capital that's flowing here, either from South America or, more importantly, these days, from the Northeast. Twelve months ago and six months ago, I would have said, well, is that really happening? I'm not sure. Is it more kind of a headline or is it a reality? And, Tom, I can tell you it's a reality. I mean, we're seeing it daily. Um, we're getting phone calls daily from clients that are moving either businesses or their employment and relocating their entire families to South Florida. That really bodes very well for us. I think that's going to continue to fuel our growth. We really love the center of the state. We like Orlando and Tampa as well. Uh, So we're going to be making more and more investments in in those markets over the next two or three years. Let's talk about what those investments could look like. In October of 2020, you finished your purchase of Executive National Bank in Miami. A few years ago, you made the big purchase with Total Bank. What form are these investments uh, for your growth in South Florida and elsewhere in the state going to take? I'd say I'd structure the investment tree in in kind of three different categories. Number one, we're going to continue to invest heavily in people. Uh, So we're going to continue to attract talent because a lot of our growth is going to come as a byproduct of the talent we're able to acquire. Organically, it's going to be people driven. It's going to be technology driven. And then we'll make, you know, acquisitions if, if the right strategic opportunity comes our way. But again, it just has to make strategic sense for us. We're, there's no sense in buying just for the sake of buying. Now, that said, I do think that in community banking or any kind of banking these days, unfortunately, you know, size, scale does matter. You need a certain scale in order to make this business work because the cost of people, the cost of compliance, the cost of technology in order to be able to earn an adequate return on capital you have to have X, you know, a certain size. So a lot of the community banks in the state of Florida are probably sub, I don't know, two, three billion dollars. If they don't find a way to generate more scale, it's going to be difficult for their shareholders to be able to justify the returns that they're going to see in that business. Let me ask a follow-up question just to that point, George, because that's really interesting. The consolidation in community banking has continued in Florida throughout this pandemic. A year ago, there were almost 100 community banks in the state. End of last year, there were 93. That may not sound like a lot of consolidation, but that's 7% fewer community banks serving 
uh, their communities. Is the low interest rate environment driving that consolidation? Is it the ability of banks to have a spread between the money they can borrow and the money they can lend being narrower and narrower driving that consolidation? Three points to your answer. Number one, yes, there's been a 7% decrease in community banks over that period of time. But if you if you kind of turn the clock a little bit further back, that number has been probably closer to from, I think it was like 200 down to 93. Yeah, it's even larger. So it's even larger. So the trend is certainly going south from that standpoint. A low rate environment is never good for banking because of what you said. The, the spreads uh, are so narrow that it's hard for banks to earn an adequate return on capital when the rates are this low. So that's not helping matters. The reality is the trend in consolidation was taking place way before the low rate environment. It's a byproduct of the fact that everything is becoming more expensive, right? The cost of people is more expensive. You have to invest in technology. Compliance is something that is you know, continuously more expensive as well. So if you don't have scale to be able to uh, absorb the investment and the expenses associated with today's business, it's very difficult to, and, and then you add on top of that, what you just said, which is the interest rate environment, it's just kind of a quadruple whammy that makes it very hard to earn an adequate return on capital. How does this consolidation of community banking, not only that we've seen during the pandemic, but even previous to the pandemic, the trends that have continued, fewer and fewer community banks, larger and larger community banks. George, how does that affect access to credit for local businesses and primarily real small local businesses, which again are the bedrock of the South Florida economy? So long as the community banking you know, sector continues to, to have community banks like north of, call it five to $10 billion, I think it's not going to have any negative impact to consumers or small uh, business owners because that is the, the lifeline of these community banks. It is a lifeline of the economy. And, and if we don't support them, then the economy doesn't do well. And if the economy doesn't do well, then we know what happens. So it's kind of a vicious circle that is going to be a focal point of remaining community banks. I don't see that becoming an issue going forward. Speaking with George Gonzalez, CEO at City National Bank of Florida, the second largest bank headquartered in South Florida. Still to come, we'll catch up this week with a cleaner baker and banker in the pandemic economy. Things are really turning around. It's a great big difference from this time last year. We're right now at a level of almost prior to the pandemic in terms of production of empanadas. Loan demand has been strong, and so it makes perfect sense for us to be adding to our lending team. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Over the past several weeks, there has been a growing optimism among the three businesswomen we speak with most weeks about how their businesses are getting along in the pandemic economy. One owns and runs a restaurant and bakery. A second leads a bank focused on business lending. And Sherry Rudolph leads her janitorial services called Legally Clean. All three have been looking to hire new workers. Last week represented the busiest that Rudolph has been since before COVID-19. We have started with the company that we're going to be doing post-construction cleaning for. Um, We are going to be starting the other post-construction in about one week. And uh, we have another one that's coming up. So probably like November of 2019 is probably the last time I was this busy. 
in terms of pricing power. I don't take the job unless I can make money. It has been challenging. And I hear this complaint from many service people that people don't want to pay for service work. They want it done. They want it done well, but they don't want to pay for it. And you have to pay for quality. It's like the difference between Macy's and Kmart's. I'm Macy's. So no, if I, if I can't obtain a uh, decent profit from a job, I won't take it. I'll just, you know, try to look for something better, but I will not take a job where I cannot make a profit. Those that, you know, understand the quality and how labor intensive the work is are willing to pay. Those whose budgets will not surrender to, you know, my prices, well, you know, then they have to, you know, go and find somebody else who can, you know, meet those requirements. It's just that they can't, I can't meet those requirements. It's very difficult to hold the line, very difficult, but it's really important that you don't undervalue your work or undervalue yourself. We have um, an opportunity every day next week. And in some cases, we have two jobs a day. We've doubled, pretty much doubled the the number of people that uh, I have working for me. Most of these people are very anxious to get back to work because they have been laid off for quite some time. So things are really turning around. It's a great big difference from this time last year. That's Sherry Rudolph. She runs Legally Clean based in Lauder Hill. Pilar Guzman Zavala is the baker. She runs Half Moon Empanadas, and she's been working to open a new store in Broward County for weeks, but it was delayed and delayed again in recent weeks. We did not open Pembroke Pines. <laughs> but the good news is that we are opening for sure either Monday or Tuesday. So that is happening, and I am excited because I, I told my uh, my poor director who's going crazy, I'm like, we're not waiting any, any more days. It is a moment right now to start building real foundations for the growth and systems. Sometimes I wish I would be more patient and I would be more like, okay, it's okay, but I just can't. You know, I have this thing in my, it's just in my belly. You know, it's like, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. And so I guess that is the drive of the company. And and I know that people that want to work with me have to understand that and have to be able to follow the, the rhythm of how I am, because that's how I want things to be. My little ventanita on, on my kitchen on 79th Street in Miami, that store has triple sales. It's been crazy. The digital sales on all the online platforms and also the website. It's really cool to see that that, that is also picking up. Um, the convention center is starting slowly to to be back. So I'm hoping that September... We will have all the university stores open again. I mean, we're right now at a level of almost prior to the pandemic in terms of production of empanadas. So we have the meals for seniors and then we have the production of empanadas and we can't keep up hiring people because that's the, the hard thing is that people don't want to work. At least the, the people that I want to hire, they, they seem not to want to work. So that's a challenge. But things are looking good. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas. Ginger Martin also is looking for a new employee. She runs American National Bank, a business bank based in Broward County. A lot of new loan opportunities. I'm I'm glad to report. In fact, so much that I'm I'm looking to hire an additional uh, lender for the team. So I think from from a banking standpoint, that's a you know that's a good sign. In a bank, your lender is equivalent to like your salesperson in another industry because this is the person that's going out and, and getting new business. They're really the revenue generators. You know, the bank has continued to grow to the the point where we just have that 
extra excess uh, liquidity that we'd sure like to turn into loans, so I am looking to hire a loan officer. What we've seen is um, I think the demand is strong. Uh, candidates are few. I think we've seen an increase in compensation for someone in that role. It's interesting how many now hiring signs I see just, you know, driving up and down, um, you know, Federal Highway, uh, hotels, there's restaurants, um, there's just like different industries that are looking for, you know, people, thank goodness, um, with more people getting the, you know, the vaccine, I do see you know, more people out and about. I mean, the restaurants are packed. It's, you know, it's unbelievable. And I'm also seeing more in-person events, you know, happening. I did get the first vaccine myself, and I've got the second one scheduled here in a couple of weeks. So I do think there's a lot more activity happening. Think back a year ago. Oh, my gosh. We were in the middle. I mean, that, yeah, that, you, you figure you know, March and April, May, that was like the worst kind of of it. So um, I'm, I'm glad that we see this improvement. That's Ginger Martin with American National Bank in Broward County, the banker of our banker, baker, cleaner trio of businesswomen we speak with most weeks here on the Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.